Hello and welcome to another exciting, and yes, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, I'm Danny Lobel, and today we have an absolutely fantastic show for you with Henry Phillips, a good friend of mine who's a very funny comic living here in Los Angeles, and I'm going to tell you a little more, but first... A word from our sponsor. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Marin, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. That's Stand Up Records, the brand you know, the brand you love. Go get some Stand Up Records for your home today. That's right, we're back. It's another exciting episode. As I mentioned, I've been also doing a show over at CBS. If you haven't heard it, you should check it out. It's called The Mostly Bull Market. It's uh, basically me and a comedian every week discussing the financial news. It's kind of the same concept as this one, only applied to a different area of study. And it's, a, it's more like a, a, a short-form, punchier, jokier kind of show than this one, which I think is cool because it gives me outlets for both. So please check that one out, too. Anyway, uh, Henry Phillips came by. This was a little while ago. I've been sitting on the audio, and I'm glad to finally get it out there now. And we had a lovely chat about, uh, well, should I even tell you? The Marquis de Sade. It's in the title. I don't know what the point of telling you is. And uh, I figure, why not just jump right into it? So without further ado... Except for the intro song, of course. Here is my talk with the delightful Mr. Henry Phillips. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. It's a nice breeze up here today, huh? Yeah, man, this is really nice. It's not always such a nice breeze. Sometimes it gets pretty hot. Oh, yeah. But you got sure. here on a good breeze day. Yeah, I, well, I live real close. Really? Yeah, I'm a oh. I just told my address to everybody. But you don't do, know do which you want, corner. Do you want me to take that out or leave it in? Um, it could get interesting. You never know. Like, yeah, just just get rid of it. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. What am I doing? You know, all right, so take that out. But, I'll take um, that out. It reminds me of a funny story. I... Uh, was doing a bunch of phoners to promote my third CD like several years ago, and they were all morning radio. And some of them, they would answer, and they would tell you to hold, and then you'd go live. And some of them, they would just answer, and you'd be live. Mm -hmm. So one time I called, and they were like, uh, hey, how's it going, Henry Phillips? And I go, yeah. And they're like, uh, cool, man. Uh, so you're playing up here in Seattle. It was with Seattle guys. And I go, yeah. That's cool. Did they take good care of you up there? And I was like, ah, it's like sixteen hundred uh, for a week, but you know, minus whatever my travel is. And then the guy's like, oh, okay. Well, I guess we all know how much Henry gets for his. Uh... And I was like, what? I didn't know we were live on the radio. <laughs> but uh, now I don't care telling people how little money I make because uh, who cares? Right. Yeah. But back then it was kind of weird because it was like, 
you're live on the radio and there, there might be an, uh, a booker, you know, who's going to give you more. <laughs> and right. Instead, you just and he's tuned yourself. in. He's like, aha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that was fun. Are you where are you originally from? I was born in New York, New York City. Okay, and, me too. Uh, lived there uh, 100th and Riverside till I was about, uh, I guess I was about 12 or 13 when we moved out to La Crescenta, California. What did your folks do? Uh, they were actors. My mom still is. My dad's basically retired, but uh, he goes by the name Bill Wiley, but he's done a lot of character roles. And, uh, oh, yeah? yeah? He's a very funny guy. Oh, cool. So you have a, you're a showbiz family. Yeah. Do you think it helps? Um. It helped in terms of me getting a lot of encouragement, you know. I never had... Mm-hmm. There, it, there was no way they were ever going to be able to say, look, we got to talk about this, uh, you pursuing the arts kind of thing. Right. So, but uh, it didn't help in any other way. No? My buddy Patrick Keene has a really great joke about... Uh, <laughs> I found out that if your parents are in show business, it really helps your chances. So I recently enrolled my mom in acting classes... <laughs> I love that one. Patrick Keene. Look him up, guys. He's great. Very funny. So so uh, you don't think you learned anything more about like the business just by being around it or whatever? You know, honestly, I didn't because, I mean, my parents were actors, and it was a different way of doing things back then. I mean, back then, you would go to an audition, and they would choose you because they liked you, and there wasn't really anything proactive about it. So... Mm-hmm. I didn't have either of the skills. Like, my dad was an amazing character actor, a great the- theatrical actor. My mom was a very good spokesperson. She did a lot of commercials and stuff. And um, I didn't have either of those things, so there was no way that I was going to start going on auditions and they were going to be like, oh, yeah, you're great. You know, I just was not good at it. I wasn't a natural. So um, when comedy came around for me, I was like, oh, well, this I could do because I'm actually... You know, I can create my own work. I can invite people out to the shows. And and uh, so I didn't really learn a lot from them because it didn't really help me in comedy. Mm-hmm. But what I did learn is uh, my dad uh, was always very good at finances because, and you have to be if you're an actor, because if you make um, a certain amount in a year, you really kind of have to divide it by three. And and make it look like you made that for three years if you really want to raise a family and stuff because you just don't know what's going to happen in the next two years, so you have to be smart with it, you know? Right. It's hard to raise a family with a, as an actor who, you know, isn't a household name, you know? It's like, it's tricky, but they were able to do it, you know? I never thought of that. I never thought about, <laughs> I've never thought about yeah. stretching out the money I make. Yeah, no, I mean, spending it. if you're by yourself, it's fine. You can do whatever you want, but... Right. um. But yeah, if you've got people that are dependent on you, you gotta be very careful. I would imagine. Are you an only child? No, my, I have a brother too. He lives out in Arizona. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive. That on two actors' salary, they raised two kids yeah. in New York City. That's, that's. Oh yeah, New York City. Oh man, they did so many politically incorrect things. They, I mean, they used to leave my brother and I just in the apartment while they would go out for auditions and stuff. We'd be by ourselves. They probably could have taken us away. But how old were you? Like when we were like five or something, I don't know. <laughs> but I think a lot of people did that back then. They didn't. There's so many things that they did with kids back then that they don't really, that they would never do now. Do you think you had a good childhood looking back? Yeah, New York was pretty tough though, because there wasn't a lot of uh, feeling of, you know, that suburban feeling. Well, you grew up where? 
Well, I'm originally from Queens, and then we moved to Long Island, so... Okay, yeah, so it, it's probably similar, but... Like, when we moved out here, that's when I started getting into playing sports and then having, you know, a solid group of friends that, uh, you know, we were all with similar goals and stuff like that. I mean, we were literally... My brother and I were just right on the street, on 100th Street, and we were only friends with whoever happened to live in the neighborhood, and some of them were not really good people, you know? I mean, I, I got along with them great, but it'd be like, we'd be sitting around, and they'd be like, let's go jump that dude. And I'm like, I don't know, really? You want to just jump a guy? Yeah, let's take his money. So uh, How old were you at this point? That was probably like eight or nine or something like so that. So you were jumping so, people yeah, at nine years well, old? We, did, I, we never did it, but I, could, <laughs> I think those guys probably eventually wound up doing it. How old were they? They were Oh, like 11 or 12 or something like that. These were rough city kids. Yeah. All right. Oh, and every time I had something, it was stolen. You know, uh, I think my parents bought me a cheap skateboard at one time, and within a day, it was stolen. And... Um, a, a friend of mine had a bike, and that was stolen within a day. You just couldn't have stuff. It was just ripped off, you know? Somebody would just literally knock you down and take it. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, it was it was kind of nice to get out. But I love New York now as an adult. It's a whole different experience. And they've cleaned up a lot of that area, too. Oh, yeah. Now now you can't afford to live on 100 and Riverside. No, probably not. I mean, I'm not saying you can't afford it. I don't know what you're... Well, I'm I mean, sure I can't. You, you said how <laughs> yeah. much you make, but... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unless I do a 1,000 gigs uh, a year, I'd have to do... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which is impossible. Unless yeah. Unless you're doing three nights. I used to live in that neighborhood. I was on 92nd and Broadway, so not too far away. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's real close. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a nice neighborhood, but I was also... Not too different than here. You're always surrounded by so much money that you feel much poorer just yeah, because yeah. of it, you know? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, there's like big money over there, I'm sure. You're like, how the hell do they do? How do they live like that? How? What are they doing? Like, tell me the secret. I know. You, wait, you have parking? You have parking? <laughs> like, just I think they shit already that people that take money. for granted here. Yeah. yeah. So you were how old when you moved to Los Angeles? Oh, um, let's see. We moved to LA. I think I was 12. Yeah, and that was pretty exciting, you know, because when you're coming from New York, you're just like, oh wow, the beach and palm trees and yeah. grass and everything. It was like, it was pretty cool. And now it's flipped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you just go to New York and it's a whole different thing. It's like, wow, you could take the train. <laughs> no beach, no palm yeah, trees. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah, totally. Do you think you maybe went into show business like your parents because? Just to, just to have some kind of closeness with them? Uh, no, no. I always find it interesting when somebody does like the same thing as their parents. Oh did. yeah, in my case, I don't think so because I don't really think I did as much. Like uh, I wasn't really into the acting. I actually gave everything up. I was trying to be a musician in high school, but um, like everybody, you know. And then when I um graduated from high school I kind of floundered for a little bit and then I went to UCLA and finished getting a degree in political science so I was pretty much completely out of it but I had these songs that I would do for my friends and then they were like you know you should do this at one of these open mic nights and I was like all right 
And that's how the whole comedy thing started. So I think I was already kind of independent of the parents by that time. But it's still showbiz. Going on stage and being a musician is still showbiz. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you never know. I always wonder if it's kind of like a notice me to, to, to the parents. Like, I'm doing something like you guys. Look at me. I'm... I'm yeah. I'm, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't have left me in the apartment so much by myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm no, cool exactly. too, you know? Yeah, totally. I always feel like uh, I think we're all just trying to get noticed by our parents. Yeah. You know? No, that, that, that could be, for sure. Or at least try to get noticed by somebody. I'm more likely to be trying to get noticed by a girl that I had a crush on in high school mm-hmm. than I am my parents, I think. You think? But who knows? We're all trying to be noticed by someone. I think that was a famous philosopher who said that. <laughs> no, I doubt it. <laughs> you think it still goes back to high school? Um, well, I think that's a very important time in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, for sure. I know that I've thought about that personally, where I've been like, I wonder if I'm still just doing this for those kids to think yeah, I'm yeah. cool, you know? Exactly, just to show them you're doing <laughs> something. Yeah. Especially now with Facebook, it doesn't end. You're like, ah, 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 I'm doing stuff. Remember That's... when you thought I would never do anything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys should have hung out with me. Yeah, that could, you know... <laughs> I think that's very uh, plausible. Yeah. Because it's such an important time. Like, that's all there is, is uh, having some kind of approval from your peers, you know. And in high school, it's more, you see them every day, you know, everywhere. And sometimes it can be painful if they, you know, if they laugh at you or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of what we're doing is trying to, you know pursue that <laughs> that's what every like high school reunion anytime you see a comedy film and they have a high school reunion it's always the loser comedian person you know who was a loser in yeah. high school trying to tell everybody that i'm cool now because i guess it's just a general theme there's not like a second high school i, I think there should be yeah you know when you turn 50 you should get four more years in high school oh that would be great and you get a chance to do it again and you're like this time you're the cool guy and and then and, and they're not you know yeah, not, it yeah. shouldn't just be one reunion it should be a four-year reunion oh, and then yeah. everybody admits that they made a mistake on you that's awesome <laughs> you just get four years to undo all that damage <laughs> and uh, and then yeah. you can go on with your life that's a great idea <laughs> yeah, if, if if any of us live that long, God, it's amazing how many people are dead from my uh, high school. I mean, you know, it's not like half of them or anything, but there's a good, you know, four or five people. And uh, I mean, I guess statistically, it just sort of happens that way. But uh, I went to a reunion not too long ago, and I got to say, they were pretty good people. It was really cool. I don't know. I guess the, there were a couple of bad eggs back then, but you, I don't know whatever happened to them. They don't really communicate. <laughs> yeah, they were just sort of like. Uh, I think the government just puts a, p- a couple of bullies in every school just to keep you honest, you know. It's a government <laughs> program. Just to, to make Americans grow up a little stronger, you know, a little tougher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. That's my conspiracy theory anyway. So. We got to plant a few bullies in the class. Yeah. <laughs> then at least a few of these kids will register for the draft. Yeah, yeah. We need... We need people to give their lives to the to the country. Yeah. And they're not going to do it if, they're, if things are too smooth. No, totally. So when you hear about people dying from your high school, how do you react to it? Well, um, immediately you're shocked because you're just like, oh, wow. Like there were a couple of suicides, uh, a couple of cancers. 
think there was a car accident in there. Um, it's not necessarily just my class, but like the two or three years on either end, you know. Um, but yeah, it's pretty shocking, you know. It's just like, uh, and it reminds you that, you know, we're all, it's going to happen to all of us, you know. Right, right. And it's, the older you get, the more you start going, well, I got to start doing some shit. <laughs> I, I get that every week, and then I'm like, uh, by the end of the week, it resets back to me not doing any shit. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I got to start doing some shit. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to hold on to that feeling, you know? Yeah, no, totally. You can stretch it for a good two, three days sometimes, and then you yeah. you, you get lost in the world again, and you're like, oh, oh wait a minute, someone else died. I should be doing something. I know. I'm still alive. I forgot. No, Yeah. <laughs> it really is so easy to waste time, especially in this day and age. I feel like everything is designed for us to just sort of... I mean, the TV shows are so great, and they keep you so intrigued. that, Like, you know, I just did Lost earlier this year. I started from the beginning mm -hmm. and, you know, went through, like, what, six seasons, and there's, like, 20 episodes in the first three seasons, and in every season I'm like... I'm just wasting so much time. I mean, it was a good show and everything, but yeah. holy shit, like an entire Saturday, entire Sunday, I'm just sitting there watching this thing over and over again. But mm -hmm. And that's only one show, and there's just tons of them now. I did it with Futurama, and I did it with Breaking Bad on Netflix, where I watched yeah. the entire thing, and then I and then I was like, I'm done. And, and my buddy Liam here, he's like, you got to start watching Game of Thrones. I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm not. They're no, not I getting know, me yeah. on another one. I don't care how good it is. Yeah. I'm, once I get hooked on another show, that could be another wasted month of my life, and and it all adds up. And in, in the oh, end, I know. Of, you never stop. Yeah, at the end of it all, uh, you're dead, and you're like, oh, I should. If only I wouldn't have watched, whatever it was, uh, yeah. Game of Thrones. Maybe I would have used that month to do something and changed my life around. I can't. I yeah. can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm. Oh, it's crazy. And then there's you know like obviously, when you check Facebook. You can get so distracted doing that. You know, there's like uh, studies, you know, it's like this study shows that, uh, you know, if you eat kale instead of pizza, you get thinner, you know, or whatever. And then you're just like, you know this crap anyway, but you just like <laughs> hit it anyway because you, you want to see if there's some new take on this. Yeah. It's like. It happens all the, <laughs> all the time. It's just the way they word it. They know. Yeah, I know. They know how to pro the programming in your brain and it gets me so mad that I'm yeah, that yeah. easily. Ten you know, things that you don't want to find out about the food you eat every day. They're just know? dangling bait, and we're like <laughs> yeah, little fish, and they're like, ah, I caught him. Yeah, uh, and then once you get one, there's going to be like eight <laughs> other ones they're going to try to push you on. Yeah, oh, they did crazy. this one, 10 celebrities with ugly spouses. I, I clicked on this the other day, and I was like, damn, that's a mean one. Oh, man. You know? Yeah. And a lot of these people, they weren't, uh, or ugly partners, whatever it was. Yeah. They're not ugly. This yeah, is yeah. just some asshole who needed <laughs> to fill some content. Yeah, that's like, awful. But it got me, and I felt so bad oh, for giving into it. I'm like, damn it, they got my click. I know, yeah, they're gonna and they're gonna do that more and more. They're gonna get meaner, and there's just gonna be anything to get you. It's like, at some point, you gotta wonder. It's like, shouldn't there be some element of not doing something because it's just the responsible thing to do, and just say like, you know, you know, I know I could get a lot more viewers on this thing if I do this, but I just think it's it's bullshit, and I don't want to live in a society where that's what they do. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, talking about how people were married to ugly people—that's fucked up. Yeah, and 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 it's like oh, it's just dangling there in front of you. You're like oh, this will only take two or three minutes. Yeah, yeah. And of course, once you're done clicking it, they hit you with another one. Like, 
all these girls that lo- used to look hot, look how they look now. Yeah. You're like, oh, I wonder how they look now. Maybe they're <laughs> yeah. not so hot. And start clicking through that. Oh, I know, yeah. They still look a lot better than most people. One, and, uh, one thing that I had happen where, where I knew I was getting old is it was one of those, like, where are your favorite child stars now? And I looked at them, and I didn't even know who any of these child stars were. I was like, shit. <laughs> well, I was looking for, like, Greg Brady and stuff. <laughs> Instead, it's just all these people from shows that happened when I was in my 20s, you know? I was like, damn, I'm old. Yeah. Like, oh, even man. the where are they now people are getting old, and I didn't... Those were kids when I was an adult. Yeah, it's weird. They'll get you, and they'll make you depressed. And and it, and if you but going back to the idea that it's just one shitty guy's idea of even of of somebody who's ugly or not. Yeah. I just did a weekend in St. Paul. Oh, at the um, what was that? The House of Comedy. Or no, something? I did Joke Joint. Joke Joint. Yeah. And uh, I picked up like a little local paper, a flimsy little you know not mass produced little local paper. Yeah. And I brought it back to the comedy condo, and I'm flipping through it, and there's a review, a scathing review. Of the new Seth MacFarlane movie, The Million Ways to Die in the West. Oh, really? And I'm reading it, and it's like, don't waste your time and money on this. You only get a few laughs. And I'm thinking to myself, everybody involved in this, I don't know if I'd like the movie or not. I don't know. But everybody involved in this gave their their life to be funny. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And some asshole who... Just sitting there. Just publishes his own little newspaper is putting this out. And I start to think, oh, I'm not going to waste my money. I'm like, why is this guy... Get to yeah, influence yeah. me over those people. That's yeah, not fair. Yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. And and yeah, when you think of some of the movies, like Ishtar, that, that one was just like, you know, annihilated by the critics. Mm-hmm. And then at one point I, I started watching it and I was like, this is pretty damn funny. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they said it sucks so bad. It's like they just wanted to see these two big guys fail, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. And then I started watching it and I was just cracking up and going, this is a great movie. So it's like fuck these people. I, I don't even I don't even know if I want to read criticism at all. You know? Yeah. It's like let me decide. Just put the ads out, and do your best to hook me. Yeah. And if you get me, you get me, and mm-hmm. I'll decide if it's okay or not. I don't need somebody else to do the work for me when it comes to art. Oh yeah. Know? No, absolutely. Well, word of mouth is always the best thing. You know, some friend of yours says, "Hey, you got to see this thing," I and mean, that's. I mean, I have to have about three or four friends tell me that before I'm going to go watch something. Right. The Lego movie is the last one that I haven't seen that everybody says is amazing. Oh, yeah. I really like the Lego movie. Yeah. That was great. See, that's a review. Forget it. But if friends of mine are saying, no, you guys should go see it. And I'm just like, all right, well, I'm going to go check it out. Yeah. I think about like uh, Picasso. Yeah. What if the reviewers, I don't know what they said about Picasso, but they, I'm sure a lot of these people didn't get it, you know? Um, they must not have. I gave my script, I, I wrote a movie script I'm trying to get made. I gave my script to a few people to read, and a few artists, mm-hmm. and, uh, one or, and, and I gave it to, a, to one suit. And uh, all the artists that I gave it to said, uh, oh, this is great, this is an awesome script. And they've all read a lot of scripts. Yeah. And the suit that I gave it to, uh, he was like, uh, you didn't hook me right away. Like, this is <laughs> like, uh, and I was like... At first, I got offended because his notes were so drastically different than everybody else's. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, maybe he knows better because he's on the business side and they're all on the art side. And then I started thinking, I just, what if, what if what I have, this is being very, uh, you know, pompous, but let's say what I have is a Van Gogh. Yeah. And I just gave it to somebody who, who, who likes, you know, pop art at, at, at yeah, the best, yeah. you know? 
He's not going to get I can't. I have to take his notes with a grain of salt because... Oh, man, I'll tell you right now. We made the movie Punch and the Clown, which, thank goodness, most of the people that I care about like the movie, you know? And um, so right before that, though, the director and I were talking to a lot of people, and there was one guy that we sat across from uh, one time having lunch, and he just shot the script down. This is before we made the movie. Just shot it down completely. He was just like, ah, the jokes. I feel like I've heard all the jokes before, which I was like, all right, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, just uh, doesn't have the arc, you know, the, where's the character development, all this other kind of academic type stuff. And what's great is that since it was self-financed, the director was basically paying for it along with some money that my cousins kicked in. And um, we were just like, all right, well, we're sorry you don't like it. Um, we're making it anyway, so fuck you. <laughs> like That's the great thing about it is that we knew it was going to be funny once we shot it and stuff like that, and once we actually got in there working with the actors and stuff. But um, yeah, you'll get all that kind of shit. I'm sure, like the guy that you're talking about, I'm sure that if he looked at like Napoleon Dynamite or just I'm thinking any random or office space or whatever, he might have said the same thing, you know? Yeah. You just never know. And But it's like once something's big, then they start looking at that going... See, with Napoleon and Dynamite, they did this, this, and that. And right. It's like, yeah, yeah, but you wouldn't have said that before. You don't know. You don't You don't know how to innovate. You only know how to copy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I watched a documentary on Caddyshack recently also, and I was, and it made me feel kind of better because they were giving Harold Ramis and all these guys a lot of shit about Caddyshack until oh, it was Oh, I'm sure. Made. Yeah. So, and then now it's like, oh, well, that's yeah. just the, the standard of excellence in comedy films. You yeah, know? you have to, it really, it can't help but make you a little bit bitter and angry, but... You just have to put up with so much proving yourself, you know. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, there was uh, the thing that there was another one I was going to add to that about your script, but um, yeah, just that reminded me of so many stories where I'm just like, oh yeah. But what are you going to do? It's frustrating constantly proving yourself. Even like I said, I was in Seattle and I wasn't gigging. Mm -hmm. And it's rare that I go anywhere yeah. to a city and I'm not there to perform. So, you know, of course, I was itching to go to the comedy clubs and, and meet people and stuff. So I, w I went around. And, of course, no one knows who I am. And then that's a, there's that awkward situation of trying to tell someone I'm funny without, yeah. you know. And, and it's like, man, when does it end? When do you Oh, get I to know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that that's the story I was going to tell. I remember now. A buddy of mine... And I came up with an idea, and we wanted to pitch it. And I only knew one guy that we could pitch it to. This was about 10 years ago or more. And um, he was the head of a production company. And we went in, and I knew um, his secretary or something like that. And so she was able to set us up with a meeting with this guy, who was a pretty big guy, and he still is. And he's a very nice guy, too. That's why I always feel awkward when I see him, because it this thing pissed me off so much, but uh, we got all ready for this pitch. Uh, Mark Gross, who who is actually now like the head writer on uh, Mike and Molly or something. I mean, he's be, gone on to be a very successful writer and everything. But um, so he and I had this idea, and we liked it so much that we were literally like, I can't think of anything that that somebody could say about this that I wouldn't have a solid response for like I can't think of anything wrong with this it's great mm -hmm. in any way you look at it you know meaning it had all of the elements you know so we went in to pitch it to this guy and the guy was just like well nowadays they want this and I would be like well they we, it has this 
it has a lot of it actually and then he'd mm-hmm. be like yeah but it's also got this and people don't like that no they do actually that's a whole trend right now and then he's like <laughs> well but you know it'd be hard to do this and it's like well these other shows are doing it you know and then finally he said something like well i mean it would just it would be a paperwork nightmare getting all the paperwork done on and i'm just like <laughs> i'm like well I I agree with you. I don't like doing paperwork either. So we're just not going to do it. Like, I mean, what if American Idol said, well, you know, we want to make this show, but there's a lot of fucking paperwork. I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I started getting the feeling the guy was just saying no, no matter what we did. Mm-hmm. And he finally came out and said it. He was like, look, here's the deal, guys. Because none of his <laughs> responses were working. Uh, and then he just goes, I don't know who you are. Like, you you know be somebody and then when you come in I'll be like okay yeah and that's when I learned that I think a lot of these pitches the decision was already made before you even walked in the door based on how how well known you are what kind of career you have what kind mm-hmm. of street cred or clout or whatever and that's when I learned like the how good the idea is unfortunately had nothing to do with it but if you know if I were a celebrity then I could just have no show and it'd just be like, I'd be like, hi, I'm Henry Phillips. And they'd be like, okay, well, let's do it. It'll be called the Henry Phillips show. They don't even care what it is. So yeah, it's yeah. Just, I don't know, but that, that always pissed me off. But that's what it comes down to is you have to be somebody. Somehow. So how do we break the, the, how do you do the, what's the trick? That's hard because there's a lot of people that don't want you to get there. <laughs> no, I, I don't think they don't want you to get there, but I think that um, they want, they want to um, help themselves, you know, so it doesn't help them to help you. I don't know, whatever. It sounds really negative. I'm a negative guy the last couple of years, but I'm trying to change all that. Yeah? Only for the last couple of years? Um, well, no. I mean, I've always been pretty negative, I guess. <laughs> but uh, it's getting more so. But I'm trying to do things about it. You know, I'm trying to drink more. You know, I'm trying to... Uh, <laughs> Eat more, you know, just kind of do positive things. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like a catch-22, though. You know, you have to be someone to make something. You have to make something to be someone. That's right. Yeah. So how do you break into that? Yeah, you just wait for some little tiny window to happen that you can jump in. I think you did the right thing with uh, punching the clown, so... Well, I got lucky because there was an old friend of mine from college that we had been talking about it for so many years, and he wound up becoming a film student, and he decided uh, that he was going to finance the movie. And so I was like, all right, well, let's do this thing, you know, but... Yeah, I mean, it lost every penny, so <laughs> I don't know. But it's a but people great like piece it. of art. I loved it. Cool. You know, that's yeah. that's that's important. That's that's what's important to me, not whether he gets his money back or not. Well, maybe one day it'll turn into something more, you know? I could care less whether he gets his money back or not. But um, <laughs> for me, it's all about the art. <laughs> Let's talk yeah. about this negativity, spiraling into negativity. Where do you think it started stemming from? Well... The fact that it's true. I mean, ultimately, well, what what is it? The old um, uh, Buddhist uh, philosophy that life is suffering, and once you admit that life is suffering, then you have a whole different perspective. Because then the good parts are more of an anomaly that you enjoy. But if you feel like everything's going to be awesome all the time, you're just going to be constantly disappointed. Mm-hmm. 
So it is a really a, a true thing that ultimately you, you got to work and you got to put up with crap. And then there's always going to be somebody who's uh, got power over you that's going to try to, you know, squash you. Um, <laughs> how are you doing out there, kids? Um, no. Should we uh, look into our philosopher here? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. You ready for it? Absolutely. Here's a philosopher Alex picked for you. Mm-hmm. He picked the Marquis de Sade. Okay. Mar- Marquis de Sade. He says, what, they, what you have in common, he said, a theme in Henry's songs is people indulging in their dark impulses. So here's a philosopher who did a lot of that. Oh, okay. That's so, awesome. Uh, I guess we should talk first about why, why is that a theme for you? I think that I, I just sort of, I definitely went through a time where I dropped out of uh, society a little bit, you know, just because I was kind of, well, I don't really fit in with... Uh, healthy people very well so you know i'm gonna uh just sort of uh worship the opposite of that you know what do you think it is that necessarily that separates you from from the healthy bunch i don't know insecurity you know i never was able to um hang with uh you know energetic uh happy people for some reason i don't know i just didn't i was just always a little bit more brooding or something like that I guess that's why you and Stanhope would click on the road, right? Yeah, we yeah we definitely got along pretty well. Well, yeah, we met back in '96, and then uh, just uh, drinking buddies basically until I started opening them for him like about four years later. Mm-hmm. It's good times, but yeah, the darkness. Yeah, like so, I always liked him because he was just doing such an aggressive "fuck you" to all of the mainstream, anything that was mainstream, you know, and yeah. I just loved it, you know, not necessarily like when I say mainstream, not like we were talking about earlier, like certain products or music or something, but mostly society, you know, mm-hmm. and he still does. And it's, just, it's amazing. The industry, oh man, he hated the industry so much. And I just, I used to love that because I hated him too. Right. What yeah, do you think you, I was always just like, well, why, why are you, why do you have this job? You know, it's right. like, why, why, how do you have a job where you decide who's going to move forward and who's not? You know, it's like, from what I can tell, you've never done anything ever. And it's like, <laughs> are you that awesome that you think that your um, opinion somehow represents what everybody else wants to buy because it's not true because they make terrible movies and they get terrible reviews uh-huh. so it's like we were talking about the critics you know yeah like what what gives you the right to have an Absolutely. opinion for yeah. more than just yourself i mean it should just be like here's what one guy who you who you're not necess- who you don't know thinks yeah. He's not officially a spokesperson for anything. He just thinks this. Exactly. You're right? absolutely right. You don't need to give him the title critic. It should just be, here's a guy who saw the movie and here's what he thinks. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's a, it's an unnecessary title. <laughs> it's so shitty. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's awful. So, so going back to the dark, to the dark thoughts... You don't think it stems from maybe like uh, maybe growing up in the streets and jumping people and having shit um, stolen? Well, there definitely was an element of me that didn't quite fit in. I think that that might be attributed a little bit to the New York to L.A. thing because um, I was the new kid. In in New York, I was um, 
basically a minority, <laughs> racially speaking, you know, which is, mm-hmm. I guess, a little bit ironic. But, um, and so I just, uh, you know, was very, you know, quiet and didn't really make any waves with anybody or whatever. And then uh, moving out to L.A., I kind of did the same thing. But, um, yeah, I think that, that put me in a in a disadvantage socially, so I just sort of, you know, dropped out a little bit, you know. And so I started getting into, like, heavy metal music and stuff, which was people where the message was dropping out, you know, like Ozzy doing, you know, the opposite of whatever mainstream society was doing, you know. Yeah. Out of all the heavy metal guys, what do you think the best messages you got out of it were? Um... Well, I mean, there was a lot of uh, fantasy, you know, lyrics about fantasy, escapist kind of stuff. Like, I feel like Kansas did a lot. I, I love Kansas, but I think mostly it was the music. Although uh, Sabbath had pretty clear lyrics that you could understand exactly what they were saying. If you listen to the song Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, it's almost exactly what would be in the thoughts of, like, the kids who did Columbine, you know? They're just, mm-hmm. like, the people who have crippled you. You want to see them burn, and you don't care if you don't again see the light of day. You know, it's just crazy. But, um, yeah, no, it was, it's just the music was so good to me. I loved it. It always fascinated me, the, the, the fact that the guys who listen to the loudest music are always the quietest guys. Interesting, yeah. That's true. Yeah, most of the metal guys are pretty quiet dudes. Why is that? Hmm. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of that internalizing thing that we were talking about. The reason that you're drawn to it is because you've kind of dropped out of, you know, the mainstream a little bit. Like I always thought that the healthy people were the ones listening to dance music or um you know, the top 40 music, or back then it was like the new wave music, but everybody was clean cut, you know, um, a lot of energy went to dances and stuff like that, whereas the metal, nobody was going to dance to a heavy metal song, you know, and so you weren't doing a lot of interacting, right? you know, there'd be a couple of slutty girls that would hang out, (laughs) I don't know, but, uh, yeah, whatever. So you brought up a these guys, uh, like the Columbine guys and everything. Yeah. Um, there must be some kind of way that you could feel a relatability to how they feel. And what do you think is the Yeah, well, what's funny is, I mean, I don't know, funny, but meaning odd. Like back in the 80s, I've even talked to friends of mine about this, but it's like, wow, I, I don't think any of us even thought for a second that that was even a remote possibility. Like you would have to be really messed up. Um, to be thinking that, but you could definitely identify with the rage and the the feeling of wanting to explode because you were humiliated somehow or embarrassed. But um, yeah, the idea of just taking a gun and shooting everybody—I think that's a whole different level. Although it is amazing that since Columbine, it's happened so often. It's crazy to me. Like there's something way wrong. Do you think if you had the opportunity to talk to one of these school shooting kids before before it happened, you'd be able to? Sort of help them out or talk to them, talk them out of it. I don't know because that would that would assume that they're doing it based on a logical, you know, approach to it, mm-hmm. and that I'd be able to show, hey, no, there, you know, there's some logic that you might not be knowing. Like for example, you know, when you get in your twenties, life gets a lot better or whatever. Like, I really don't know. I think I think some of those guys uh, 
we're pretty far out there already. I, I'd love to try, but uh, have you ever have you become through your comedy a voice for you know the metal? And, you not know, not really, because I I went with the folk music uh, approach to it, and that was mostly just for comedic purposes, you know. Like if I wanted to satirize like metal, it would have to it would require you know a lot more production and stuff like that. I feel I like they need a it. there should be a voice for them, you know. Yeah, I think that's what the loudness of the music is about. It's just like I want to be this loud, so just be loud for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just like I don't, I can't, I can't do it right now. Just yeah, this, yeah, you yeah. just please. Yeah. Just don't just be loud for you. Be loud for me too. Like be yeah, you know. No, absolutely. All right, well, here, let me go back. Let me get back to uh, Marquis de Sade and give you this synopsis. Okay. Marquis de Sade wrote many plays about the darker side of human impulses, like sex, violence, and blasphemy. He can be called a hedonist, meaning he believed pleasurable experiences are what matters in life. We are not judged on these because there is no God. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. A little background on the Marquis de Sade. If you're okay, yeah, let's do little... it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I interest you in a bit more on the Marquis de Sade? Absolutely. A bit more Marquis? Uh, he lived from June 2nd, 1740 to December 2nd, 1814. His real name was Donatian Alphonse Francis de Sade, better known as the Marquis de Sade. He was French. He was an aristocrat. He was a revolutionary politician, a philosopher, and a writer, famous for his libertine sexuality. His works include novels, short stories, plays, dialogues, and political tracts. Political tracts. In his lifetime, some were published under his own name, while others appeared anonymously, and Saad denied being their author. He's best known for his erotic works, which combined philosophical discourse with pornography, depicting sexual fantasies with an emphasis on violence. Oh, I get it. This is where sadism comes from. Sadistic. Oh, Sad. oh I see. Sad. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I'm guessing. I think that's probably it, right? Yeah, it sounds right. Uh, otherwise, it's quite a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. That would be an amazing <laughs> stage name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Criminality and blasphemy against the Catholic Church. He was a proponent of extreme freedom, unrestrained by morality, religion, or law. The word, oh, there we go. The word sadism and sadist are derived from his name. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I was right. I was That's right about right. something. Yeah. Okay. Saad was incarcerated in various prisons and in an asylum, an insane asylum, for about 32 years of his life, 11 years in Paris, 10 of which were spent in the Bastille. A month in Conciergerie, Conciergerie. I don't know. Two hmm. years in a fortress. Uh, a year in Madelonists. I can't pronounce these hmm. words. Yeah, I don't know. Three years. Anyway, he got around, huh? He really made the prisons. Yeah, I know. He had a. He had a <laughs> definitely not a boring life. It, during the French Revolution, he was an elected delegate to the National Convention. Many of his works were written in prison. Mm -hmm. So this is a really dark guy. This yeah. guy this guy really makes you look like a like a oh no, yeah, jar full like of rainbows. A, this is a real thing. Yeah. He almost sounds a little bit like uh, Aleister Crowley, who was that uh, 
But he's, Aleister Crowley was a much darker figure. Who was Aleister Crowley? He was like a anti-religious and uh, hedonist uh, guy out of uh, Britain back, I think. But he was more like early 1900s or mid-1900s or something. I don't know. But this guy sounds a lot like that, except for maybe not as extreme. Well, he has sadism named after him. That's, That's like... true. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean... Uh... He probably did really well on fetish websites, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would, well, he would have if he was around. Well, I took right. a lot of philosophy in college, and um, I got to say that this isn't one of the guys that we studied, so maybe there was some kind of rejection of him based on his pornography. Some of his books were called uh, Justine, The 120 Days of Sodom, uh, <laughs> Juliet, The Crimes of Love, the Misfortune of Virtue and other They all sound like Black Sabbath album titles, actually. <laughs> Incest. That was a big hit. Okay. Um, uh, dialogue entre un perit in un moribond. I don't know. Wait, wait, one more time. <laughs> Letters from Prison. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of stuff. This guy really put out a lot of work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which is inspiring. I mean, he was in jail and he put a lot of a lot of stuff out, which means if we're free men, we should be putting out more stuff too. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's like we were talking about earlier. Like, you forget that you're alive. You got to get shit. Well, this guy, uh, I did the math. He lived to be, what, 74? 1940 to... Um, to 1940. What did you say? 1740 to 1814? Uh, I can pull it up again. Seventy four is a pretty good length of time for back in those days, especially if you had that kind of a life, you know. Yeah, seventeen forty to eighteen fourteen. Yeah. That's My kid decided was bad. a dark motherfucker. Huh? Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, let me see if there's any more uh, interesting imprisonment for his writings and death. In 1801, Napoleon Bonaparte ordered the arrest of the anonymous author of Justine and Juliet. Saad was arrested at his publisher's office and imprisoned without trial. First in... Which he should have been like, all right, that's pretty sadistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're putting me in jail? That's another book right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, first he went to the Saint-Pierre-Belanger prison and then... Following allegations that he had tried to seduce young fellow prisoners there, uh, he was moved to a harsher fortress in Bercetri. So even in prison, he was a badass. He was like, yeah. <laughs> "Wow, you don't want, you do not want the Marquis de Sade as your cellmate." No, not ab- not the guy who started the word sad- sadism. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Oh man. Well, what were some of his philosophies? Um, well, I'm gonna I'll bring it up in one more second. I just want. Oh yeah. Sadbi began a sexual relation with a 14-year-old Madeleine Leclerc, the daughter of an employee at Charlton. This affair lasted some four years until his death in 1814. He had left instructions in his will forbidding that his body be opened for any reason whatsoever and that it remain untouched for 48 hours in the chamber in which he died and, that, uh, and then placed in a coffin and buried on his property located in Malmaison, 
near Eperion, I don't know. Uh, his skull was later removed from the grave for, um, what's it called? Uh, phrenological examination. For phrenological? See, see what was in his brain that made him weird like that? Yeah. Later removed from the grave for phrenological examination. His son and all his remaining unpublished manuscripts, yeah, his son and all his remaining unpublished manuscripts burned, including the immense multi-volume work Les Journées de Flaubel. The Young Girls? I think I know that one. I'm not sure. Uh, so, yeah, so this guy was 70, dating a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. Until I'm, he died. I'm, I'm, as I'm browsing it, he was in... I'm looking at all the prisons he was in. He was in solitary confinement. Uh, he must have come up with some pretty dark shit in solitary yeah. confinement. They oh, let yeah, him out. That. They let him out, and then he and then he hooked up with a 14-year-old. Wow, that's yeah, that's really nuts. That must have been that must have been a rough one for her. Yeah. No, absolutely. I wonder <laughs> if she's got any books out. There. Friends say she was really into it, though. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's. <laughs> Okay, so here, I'll give you some of his stuff to read. Okay. A letter to his wife while he was imprisoned in the Bastille. I am a libertine, but I am not a criminal nor a murderer. And since I am compelled to set my apology alongside my vindication, I shall therefore say that it might well be possible that those who contemn me as unjust as unjustly as I have been as I have been might themselves be unable to offset the infamies by good works as clearly established as those I can contrast to my errors. Fuck, I hate that kind of shit. You know, it's like, I'd have to read it again. I am a libertine, but three families residing in your area have for five years lived off my charity, and I have saved them from the farthest depths of poverty. I am a libertine, but I have saved a deserter from death, a deserter abandoned by his entire regiment and by his colonel. I am a libertine, but at every, with your whole family looking on, I saved a child at the risk of my own life who was on the verge of being crushed beneath the wheels of a runaway horse-drawn cart by snatching the child from beneath it. I am a libertine, but I have never compromised my wife's health nor have I ever been guilty of the other kinds of libertinage so often fatal to children's fortunes. Have I ruined them by gambling or by other expenses that might have deprived them of or even one day foreshortened their inheritance? In a word, I did in my youth herald a heart capable of the atrocities of which today I stand accused. Oh, did I in my youth? What is a libertine? Yeah, we're going to have to look that up. Uh, let's do that right now. You got it? Yeah, libertine. Um, one devoid of most moral restraints, which are seen as unnecessary or undesirable, especially one who ignores or even spurns accepted morals and forms of behavior sanctified by the larger society. Libertines put value on physical pleasures, meaning those experienced through the senses of philosophy um, as philosophy, libertinism gained newfound adherence in the 17th, 18th centuries, particularly in France and the Marquis de Sade. So that's what it is. It's some, somebody who's like a, a heathen or something, or somebody who just has rejected the notion. Well, I think what he's trying to say is 
that he has this philosophy against moral, um, especially religious morals, where sexuality is concerned, it sounds like. But I think what he's trying to say is, but he's also saved a, kid. a kid's life, <laughs> and he's, you know, um, never done anything harmful to anybody in his family. So I think that he has, like, a basic moral uh, code, but he just... Um, refuses the ones that society put up about taboos and, you know, mostly, I guess, sexual. I, I gotta believe that if we read these books, there's some twisted shit he did to those 14-year-old yeah. girls. No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, but it sounds like he at least is trying to justify what he's doing. But yeah, it sounds pretty selfish. I think everything, sexuality really stems from childhood as well, like he must have had a really rough childhood. He must have had quite a bit of abuse to become so abusive. Yeah. No, I would imagine for sure. I think a lot of these guys. I think people are just always acting out their childhood through sex, you know? Yeah, he might have been bullied, you know, because of his name. Well, no, the go government probably put... <laughs> the yeah. government put a few bullies in That's there and right. it backfires. And the yeah. Thing, you know. <laughs> and they're like, fuck, now it's costing us money because we're going to put him in jail. How slighted must the Germans have felt to not have sadism named after one of their words? <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, they must have been bummed about that. Yeah. <laughs> the French beat them to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we got to figure out where masochism comes from. That's got to come from a Jewish thing. <laughs> the Marquis de Masochismo. I wonder. There's got. Um, I wonder. Let's give it a Google. Where does the word masochism? I'm now. I'm very curious because I didn't know the word sadism was named after some somebody. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's weird. But um, definitely, I think that that paragraph is is justifying his own uh, human um, value, despite the fact that he believes in this philosophy that's anti-religion and stuff. You think it's just basically just excuses? He's just saying, I am a good guy, even though I don't, I don't believe in, uh, you know, the morals. I mean, that, he definitely is against religion, that's for sure. It's, it's, it struck me a lot like I have a black friend. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it is kind of like saying that. That's true. Where does the word masochism come from? Uh, how did it work its way... Well, we all know the Marquis de Sade popular... We all know. <laughs> Fuck you, I didn't know. Yeah, no, come on, man. <laughs> now I didn't I, know either. We all know the Marquis de Sade popularized the term sadist uh, via 120 Days of Sodom. Well, that was that book. And Justine. As well as being exemplified by his own devilish lifestyle. How and why was the word masochism popularized? Masochism is named after Leopold von Sacher Massoch. Hmm. And you can get all the filthy details on this link. Ah, well, all right. Yeah. I don't know who that is, but uh, all right, let's take a quick look at the link. He was an Austrian writer and journalist who gained renown for his romantic stories of Galician life. Hmm. Galician life. The term masochism is derived from his name. During his lifetime, Sacher Massach was well known as a man of letters, a utopian thinker, and somebody who loved getting his nipples pinched. Am I right? Yeah, Come yeah. on. I guess so. 
<laughs> well, he's Austrian, so at least we're closer to the Germany thing. Yeah, they had to get their yeah, yeah. thing in there somewhere. They're, They're the M of SNL. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at these quotes. Okay, so what do we got? So these are quotes from so, Marquis de Sade. Read one, and then we'll discuss. And the second, we discuss the third, and then the show's over. Okay. In order to know virtue, we must first acquaint ourselves with vice. Pretty straightforward. Um, if you got no vices, you got no virtues. Yeah, you got nothing but, but to fight against. Right? He he almost sounds like he's saying that um, <laughs> you have to commit sins first and then become virtuous. Or maybe he's just saying, maybe he's going back to the kind of virtue that he has, like taking care of his wife and you know saving a child's life or whatever. Um, those things wouldn't even exist if it weren't for the fact that they were contrasted with his uh, vicious lifestyle. I don't know. Um, I, I guess is it he, true? I, I wonder guess, if that quote's true when you think about it. I think, uh, yeah, I think in order to be more righteous, I think everything has like a flip side. Like the darker you are, mm-hmm. the more it counts if you're positive. Like like in your case where like you're like, oh, I got, I'm getting real negative. I got to get positive. Yeah, yeah. Like somebody who being positive comes naturally to, mm-hmm. you're like, you know what? Fuck your positivity because you didn't, it can't, you didn't have any struggle to get there. Like, Yeah, that's true. I, that's an interesting point. Like you have to actually have experienced the dark side in order to know, you know, what it's like to feel good or whatever. I almost don't trust somebody who's never done anything dark, like who's never mm-hmm. been in, you know, had some suicidal thoughts or been in the pits of things, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I I, uh, I met a guy in my early 20s who uh, we just clicked so instantly because we were both um, just had such a dark sense of humor. And it was but it was so uncommon, you know, with people at that age because everybody's like excited and stoked about going to college and all this other stuff and uh yeah it's definitely uh you know a an alluring uh quality that people have you know to be able to you know make jokes about things that are scary or whatever you know it's like you've earned your folk song stripes yeah you, yeah you, you didn't go straight to folk you went the you went through the dark path. Absolutely. You, you shook yeah. hands with Ozzy for a second. You, yeah, you, and the folk music thing yeah. was, was like a love hate thing. Like I I couldn't help but see the humor in that kind of music that just sings about love and just sort of takes itself too seriously sometime. But there's got to be a part of you that also really likes it to be up there doing it all the some time. Some of it was really good. Yeah, I mean, um, I like some of the melodies and things like that. But any more than, you know, I like food and I teach people how to cook, but I'm mostly being bad at it on purpose, you know. I always feel like anything you parody, you also kind of secretly love. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Actually, uh, to bring it all back, Seth MacFarlane was saying that about his movie because he loves westerns. So Mm -hmm. I got to see this thing. I want to see it and like it just despite that asshole who wrote (laughs) about it. Yeah. in order to virtue, to know virtue. So um, you could be talking about movies too. In order to enjoy a good one, you got to see like 15 shitty ones to know. <laughs> but it's like for filmmakers to watch bad movies, you can almost learn more by going, okay, the way that they did this is bad. And I want to make sure I never do that in a movie. You know, there's mm-hmm. like certain things like that. Cause I've seen movies where I try to analyze what is it about this thing that sucks so bad. 
And uh, you can learn a lot from that. But that is loosely what he's saying here. It's like when they say you learn more from a bad set than a, than a good set. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. In order to know virtue, we must first acquaint ourselves with vice. So, yeah, it's like that yin and yang thing you were talking about. Mm-hmm. All right, should we take a look at this next one? Yeah. Sex is as important as eating or drinking, and we ought to allow the one appetite to be satisfied with as little restraint or false modesty as the other. That's true. I, I wouldn't make the jump to say it's as important as eating or drinking because if you don't eat or drink, you die. Sex, you just have a miserable life if you don't have that. Right. I actually uh, read somewhere that sex, having sex more often um, adds years to your life. You know. Really? Yeah. It's just sort of like what we're supposed to be doing. So he's got a really good point here. And it is a bummer that uh, society controls it to a large extent you know uh, rating certain movies and um you know making certain things illegal or whatever um he's definitely coming out and making a pretty bold moral statement at that point right yeah i guess we're always being fed something by people who want us to you know mm -hmm. who have their own interests i guess going back to what you were talking about everybody's looking out for their own interests Society is being fed stuff by people who have a lot of financial interest in it. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So, which is cool when you find those microbrewery beers and you're like, you're not feeding me Budweiser anymore, America. <laughs> yeah. Free. Yeah, so, um, no, I think the point he's making is a little bit uh, ahead of his time, you know, because I think a lot of people are making that point now. And, and America has finally loosened up its hang-ups a little bit about sexuality yeah i mean just hopefully because yeah it it is uh it's ridiculous to deny that it's something that people need to do it's so strange when you know censorship is such a weird thing like Mm -hmm. you should be able to choose you know what things you want to be exposed to like i i understand ratings you know I don't understand censorship. Like, you should be able to say whatever you want. You should be able to show whatever you want. Yeah. Put a warning at the, you know, the thing. This is what you're going to watch. Yeah, yeah. This is what you're going to hear. Absolutely. You know, but don't, don't pretend like it doesn't exist. Oh, I know. It's, you know, and I think back in the 80s, they were trying to do that. And now they finally realize, I mean, there's a great interview on YouTube with uh, Frank Zappa. It was on that show Crossfire. And it's usually just the two liberals against the two conservatives. But in this case, even like the liberal, it was all three of them against Frank Zappa. And all Frank Zappa was saying is like, you should be able to talk, saying about whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And they were like, really, even child molestation? And he was like, yeah, you, you should be able to say child molestation. You should be able to talk about it. You know, I don't want to tell people, obviously child molestation's wrong. That's what he felt. So... But just saying it out loud is all that you'd be doing in a song. You know, I mean, it's like, but I think all those people have been, when I watch that video, it's it's like watching a a bunch of um, cavemen hanging out and one guy's trying to light a fire and you see sparks every now and then the other ones are laughing at him saying, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're wrong, you're never going to. 
And he's like, no, no, I really think this is the way it is. And then years later, the other ones look like idiots. They're all just standing, sitting around the fire, miserable, and they're like, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Yeah, I guess he was right. (laughs) Here, you mind roasting this hot dog? Yeah, I know, exactly. (laughs) But, yeah, and then also back in the 50s, you can see this online, too. Like, the Mormon church had a uh, handbook. It was like the Mormon's Guide to Self-Control or something, and there's a whole area about not masturbating, trying to keep yourself from masturbating. And it's got all these guidelines in there. Like, um, it was like, you know, tie a hand to the bedpost, you know, or this is probably straight out of the books from Marquis de Sade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he was like, you know, yeah, it's like, tie, you know, uh, when you go out in public, try to, you know, be extra forceful when you shake people's hand, you can Google this thing. It's, it's amazing, but it's like, that's unhealthy. Cause if, if you're telling people, that they shouldn't be allowed to do that. I mean, that's your body is telling you to do that. Yeah. And uh, you're going to cause a lot of confusion and frustration with people. Involving rope tying yourself to the bedpost <laughs> and, and denying an orgasm. That's all got to be right in there. Oh, yeah. Marquis decides 10 best ways to spend yeah, a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. All right. Let's see this last one. There is no God. Nature sufficeth. sufficeth unto herself in no wise hath she need of an author that's just him denying god it's funny how he went from speaking normally and now he's in old english oh yeah okay now i get it so you don't need to say who made nature yeah nature takes care of nature yeah but then who is nature yeah and so so what he's saying here is actually what is nature yeah what is nature um what is life? Where does life come from? He's, uh, he's not answering too much right there. I no, think. but he's saying it's not what you think. You know, it's yeah. not what it says in the Bible or whatever, you know. He's saying it's a self, you know, sustaining thing. Yeah. Nobody's in charge. Well, it's like people think that apples were given to them because God, you know, put them there for us to eat. But it's like, no, we just adapted to such that we enjoyed eating apples and they actually gave us a lot of nutrients as well so it makes sense that we like them and blah 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 you know evolution so yeah this this is really ahead of his time and uh it's probably the most um i guess uh what's the word most lasting of the of the things that we've read about him is like you know obviously the pornography part you get that but then when there's actually philosophies like this where he's coming from then you see why he's had a name that's been passed down but uh i wonder if he feel if he felt like he had to deny god to justify his actions could be or it was the other way around maybe he just sort of came up to this conclusion like when he was just younger just like all this stuff's bullshit and then he's like so i can just do whatever i want maybe um it's interesting yeah I, i wonder which way it is like maybe he felt like you know he's got some 14 year old girl tied up and and whipped and then he's like you know what if there is a god i'm screwed yeah uh, <laughs> there isn't one i'm going with the hat for sure yeah you know <laughs> and she's like please help me so <laughs> like, yeah no one no one will you. <laughs> i'm going I'm making him german again <laughs> no yeah. one will hear your cries <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly I wanted one of his quotes to be, no pain, no gain. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That would be great.
No pain, no gain. Yeah. yeah, that can sound very sadistic when you think about it. The Marquis de Sade. Yeah, yeah. interesting stuff. Has, have they made a biopic about him yet? I'm sure there's got to be. Why would anybody not make that movie? I want, I'm going to look into him more now. It's got everything that you'd need. You could have uh, one of these guys like, uh, I don't know, um, Benicio del Toro or something could play him or something like that. Somebody with an interesting European sort of... Yeah. I'm going to look into more and tell no one about it. Yeah, there you go. I'm going to read some of these pornography. Uh, Justine. That's also, uh, it's got to be a song, too. Justine, Justine. <laughs> Limple, the nipple clamps have never looked so good on anyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But my Justine. <laughs> be funny if he was here to defend himself. He's like, I never put on nipple clamps. But maybe he did. I don't know. <laughs> I'd like that that would be his big justice. Yeah, yeah. He's like, that's not my thing. I'm not a nipple clamp guy. <laughs> yeah, that's just not what I do. I'm just saying that if you want to do that, it's fine. You're not going to go to hell afterward. But it's not. It's not any of the God stuff or anything. It's just, he's like, look, you know, yes, I liked torturing women. Yeah. Nipple clamps? <laughs> Who do you think I am? Come on. Give me a little more credit. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a whip and chain guy. Come on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's me? my thing. It must have been hard back then to try to meet people that were also into the same thing that you were into. But I guess they had a name, the Libertines. In France, it probably wasn't too tough. Yeah. Especially during like the French Revolution with the depressed society and a lot of like sexual repression. Yeah, I think there was a lot of that revolution happening as well. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder if sa France was sexually a repressed place. I think it was always kind of a sexually liberated. Well, I think there was a big Catholic uh, church presence there. And then during the Revolution, I'll bet a lot of that got overturned. I, I know that William Blake, the poet, was really uh, affected by the Revolution, and he was very anti-establishment, you know. France has always been kind of sexy, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Gerard Depardieu. I mean, he's a... Hunky looking dude. I don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's actually kind of a big, odd looking guy. But um, but yeah, some of the most beautiful celebrity women that you've ever seen. It's ridiculous. But um, well, good stuff, man. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a good time. Um, I'm gonna check out uh, some of your other episodes too. Oh, uh, thank you. And uh, do you want to plug anything or? Um. I just want to tell people to go to my uh, YouTube channel. I have henryphillips.com, and from there you can go to the YouTube channel. And just, uh, if you like them, you know, tell your friends about them, because that's really what I'm into doing nowadays. I, I like making my own films. I just, uh, you know, there's, it's no fun to do it if people aren't watching it, you know. So yeah, I try to tell people to go and check those out. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Henry. Appreciate awesome, Danny. It. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Talk to you later. All right, later. <laughs> <laughs> it's never like a good great end. Uh, be Just well now awkward dismount <laughs> enjoy the rest of your life yeah <laughs> okay you stay positive <laughs> that's true alright bye <laughs>
Dan Schlissel and Stand Up Records continuing to deliver great content, including this, in the world of comedy. And you got to go and pick up some of those albums that Dan produces. They're fantastic. Mark Marin, Maria Bamford, Hannibal Burris, my album. They're all there. Go to StandUpRecords.com. I'll see you next time with another exciting episode of Modern Day Philosophers. But in the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, and I hope you would, please take a trip over to ModernDayPhilosophers.net and click the old Donate button. It would be nice to get a donation here and there, and I'm always very grateful to people, and I'll, I'll write you a thank you, and who knows, it could spark. I've had a lot of great email friendships because of this show, and I continue to have them, and you can always write me without a donation at yahoo.com. but who knows, it could spark a long-time friendship. So uh, with or without a donation, say hello at yahoo.com. Leave five stars and a nice review on iTunes. It helps the show. And other than that, get on with your life. Have a great time. And uh, do things. Do things you enjoy. Go for a hike if you can. It's always nice to get a hike in. I don't do it too much personally, but I hear people rave about it all the time. Okay. Have a good week, and I'll see you next time with another episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.